everyone's got their scars. Everyone's got their stuff that they don't lead with when they meet somebody at a networking event. We all got hard things that we've been through. And one of the things that I've learned, and that's been true for me, is that we get to choose you know, what things mean. We get to assign meaning to things. Welcome to the Real Better Life podcast, where people that are writing stories worth telling share their knowledge, wisdom, and perspective to help you go further, faster as you move to your better life. Over to your hosts, Dave Ness and Rob Alkema. Welcome to episode 11 of the Real Better Life podcast. Our guest today is Nathan Terborg, and we get to hear from someone who spent close to 20 years as a top 1% performer in sales and leadership before making a 180-degree pivot into a full-time career as an artist. You're going to hear two big themes today. One of those is the power of curiosity from both a personal and professional standpoint. And the second is how to turn our scars into superpowers, as Nathan would put it, by how we process rock-bottom moments that we experience in life and work. So with no further ado, let's dive into today's episode. Hey, man, glad to have you on here today. As we dive into this topic today, scars are superpowers. I love this. Definitely excited for people to be able to hear some of your story, some of your background and how you've taken that and worked that into your art and into your work and into your life today. I want to start off with two quotes. One of them was actually one that I stole from you about 10 years ago. And that is, oh boy, the unexamined life is not worth living. I remember you giving a keynote address at a leadership meeting. And then one that I'll share back with you. It takes more courage to examine the dark corners of your own soul than it does for a soldier to fight on the battlefield. Hmm. And so as we dive into this topic of our scars and how to take our scars and turn those into something useful and beneficial to ourselves and to the world around us, we're going to launch into that with this other topic, which is one of your superpowers for sure, which is curiosity, right? Tell me more about that because when we were talking offline, for sure, one of the things I would say to describe you is the word I used was intense. You're one of the most intense or extreme people that I know. You do everything that you do 100% to levels that most people don't take it. But you're also one of the most curious people I know. You journal a lot. You ask great questions. You're willing to peel back the layers you spend a lot of time journaling. And so tell us a little bit more about that curiosity and the evolution of curiosity for you. Uh, well, first of all, thanks for having me. Excited to be with you with you guys today. Yeah, I would say that I should make one small correction before I we dive into curiosity. I am intensely focused on things that I am interested in. <laughs> right. <laughs> and supremely lazy and disinterested in <laughs> things that don't right. you so, know, so my fancy. <laughs> for people that don't know you, Right. Like you said, oh, intense. And I'm like, yeah, intense. You know how like you don't just you introduced me to cold plunging earlier this year, but it's not enough to just cold plunge. Like you're like, oh, yeah, the guys I do cold plunging with Tommy, like you got to submerge your whole head underwater and breathe through a bamboo stick. <laughs> so you get and I'm like, dude, that's freaking crazy. Um, <laughs> that's you know, awesome. and it's like, how long do you have to do it to get the benefits? Like two to three minutes. How long is safe before your body goes into hypothermia about 12. So you're consistently in the range of like eight to 10 minutes. Like you're, you're buttoning up right against the edge of the danger zone. But that's what I love about you is you're willing to test those limits. And if you're going to do it, you do it to the nth degree. That is my nature, I think for better and for worse. And we can, we can talk about both, (laughs) but I've always been interested in, in the extremes. I mean, that I think is where real growth comes from. It's also where there's danger and danger is interesting and that captures my attention, you know, as well. So yeah, I mean, I think as, and we can talk more about my story if you want, but as I've 
made a pretty major life transition. I guess it's been about three years ago now. I have learned a lot about what I'm really good at and what I just sort of had to figure out or figured out how to do good enough, you know, which I think is just to kind of put a pin in like, it's really helpful, whatever path that you're on, if it is your intention to grow and get better at it, understanding that you really don't have to be elite really at anything. If you're fortunate, you can maybe be above average at a handful of things and then just kind of figure out the rest. So one of the things that's become clear to me over the last couple of years is I've been kind of reflecting on my time in the business world and on my time in the creative space and, and pursuing my passion as a, as a full-time artist is that questions really are... That's really where growth comes from, the power of the questions that we ask and understanding. Like for me, one of the questions I asked was, what am I naturally good at? What do I love doing? And what comes easy to me? You know, and for me, like it, it narrows down to a pretty dang short list. Like I'm elite at like maybe one or two things, you know, if that. And the only one I'm really interested in, in unpacking and leaning into is just that, that curiosity piece of like, you know, for me, I'm just perpetually fascinated. It takes very little <laughs> to, to capture my attention and to hold it again, you know, when I'm really interested in it. And I think that for me now, and, and even as I look back over the years, you know, previously, uh, whether I was aware of it or not, one of the most powerful questions that I was asking is that question of what if. I think that if nothing else, you know, in terms of just, you know, whatever takeaways from today's conversation, I would encourage everybody to develop your own version or versions of that question of what if. Like, what if I were to, you know, so for me, just thinking about the transition from business to art, that all happened when my dad passed away and we were getting ready for his funeral and we were putting all the pictures together like, like you do and came across a bunch of photos of him acting and uh, just doing little sketch, little community productions and a little, little sketches at church, you know, whatever, but he loved doing it. And it was something that he talked about a lot, which was, in his golden years after retirement, they were going to move a little bit closer to the city. And uh, it's just something that he wanted to do more of. And passed away when he was very young, 61, never got to that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And so that's what got me thinking like, all right, this business has been phenomenal. I've loved every single, well, that's a lie. Why am I lying? I've loved, uh, <laughs> broadly speaking, I've loved every year of it. I'll put it that way, certainly not every moment. But it just, you know, that question of what if, what if I didn't have to wait until my golden years to pursue what I believe I was put here to do? So that's just one example. But I think that that's a very powerful sort of clarifying question. What if? And just, just that kind of that possibility thinking, I think, is extraordinarily powerful. Yeah. Mm. Can I go back to something you said? Because it's really interesting to hear you say, you don't have to be elite at anything. You just have to be above average at a few things. And when you were talking about those questions you were asking yourself and you narrowed it down to, to just a couple things and really curiosity is the one that caught your attention. What I wrote down is, it's ironic to hear you say that because I know you pretty well. And I've worked with, shoot, at this point, hundreds, probably close to thousand different salespeople. I put you in the top 10 best salespeople I've ever spent time around, just in terms of talent and execution and the level, the gear that you can operate in that just most people don't ever access or don't have the ability to access. This is something you're exceptionally good at, like exceptionally gifted top 1% at, but yet that's not something you consider one of your superpowers. So why is that? And then B, how did curiosity perhaps play into you being as good at sales as you were? Well, I think that what 
Thank you for the compliment. I think that, I guess, why not top five? Let's talk about that. Well, I'd have, to, I'd have to uh, actually sit down and make the list, but <laughs> totally. I'll let you know your exact ranking once we're off of here. <laughs> uh, that's funny. No, I think it comes down to pattern recognition, you know? So I think that certainly things like rapport and connecting with people and being able to communicate a message in a way that is hopefully compelling for someone to take action, like that's that is something that comes somewhat naturally to me, but I think most of it just comes down to pattern recognition. I, f- I mean, when I say this, I see a lot of people like either raise their eyebrows, like, what do you mean? Or kind of nod like exactly. But I think this is a very common part of the human experience. But for me, and what I've discovered is for a lot of other people, I've always felt a little bit like whatever, an alien or somebody who like is just trying to sort of like figure out and do my best impression of what a human <laughs> being is is supposed to do maybe that makes me a sociopath but but i think that's a, that's a lot of it too is like okay what is it what are the top people doing what does it look like to be this version of a thing that i'm trying to be and then sort of emulating that and figuring out okay cool what are what are the people who i have very little in common with from a personality standpoint all right they're doing this thing but so is somebody who has who i have a lot in common with so that must be a common denominator let's call it so the things that I figured out how to do well, a lot of them have just come from that pattern recognition, which all comes back to curiosity. Like, huh, I wonder if, let's talk about the gym. I wonder if the way that Mike at the gym, who beats me almost every workout, I wonder if the way that he, whatever, approaches pull-ups, <laughs> is it how he ties his shoes? I, of course, I wouldn't write the pull-ups as a terrible example, but <laughs> I wish whatever. it was easy. <laughs> <laughs> but is it, you know, just what if, what if that's the thing and, and just being willing to experiment, right? Like for me, curiosity then leads to experiments and experiments always have tremendous value if they're reasonably intentional you know on the front end but i think that one of the biggest things that prevents people from experimenting with again whatever matters to you is just fear of oh well what if in the wrong direction what if it doesn't work and the answer to that question is always you're going to learn something so yeah what if it doesn't work okay <laughs> if you're paying attention taking notes, right? Like there's going to be a feedback loop there that you can really plug into and it will push you further. And again, the risk versus reward is pretty minimal for, you know, again, a reasonably designed, you know, experiment that doesn't involve whatever, base jumping. But, <laughs> you know, it's not life or death, but we treat it like it is, you know what I mean? I think that that's, that's one thing too that I've, I've really observed is like how how much my, and I will extend this to the human condition, our sort of, you know, reptilian brain just taps into that fight or flight mode of, you know, is this life or death? And we respond, you know, our parasympathetic nervous system responds as though it really is you know, life, life or death when it's just not, right? I mean, in, in very few situations, are we actually in a scenario that requires the level of you know, stress and anxiety that we are conditioned, you know, to respond to. So anyway, long story short, just that willingness to carry curiosity into a version of an experiment and just see which it either works, which, hey, rock and roll, or it doesn't work, in which case, great, new information to operate from going forward. Yeah. So I highlighted being willing to experiment, right? Because there's two things that strike me. Curiosity is you have to first be willing to ask questions. And sometimes I would think that the same thing that holds people back from experimenting is the same thing that holds them back from asking questions, right? Like, what if I look dumb? What if people realize I don't have all the answers and I don't have this figured out? There's a level of insecurity there where people are, all of us do that. We try to protect our ego, but that's something you're uniquely good at. You don't let that ego hold you back from asking the question. You also don't let the ego hold you back from 
experimentation, but take that one step further, right? Like you are, you journal more than anybody I know. It's not just that you're asking the questions. It's not just that you're experimenting, but you're going back and you're reflecting on those experiences and what comes up for you and what you're learning from that. And then you're capturing that as well. So talk a little bit about that process. Is that something that you've always done or is that something that you had to work and create habits around? It's definitely work. It's definitely a habit. It's one of those things. I mean, we could probably, between the three of us, come up with a pretty short list of things that pretty much everybody ought to do or will benefit from, (laughs) regardless of life circumstance, you know, age, whatever. But that would be one of them. But it is, it does take discipline to sit down and do it. But I've been doing it for a while. I think, gosh, thinking back, I've always enjoyed writing. I've always enjoyed sort of processing things on paper and trying to capture things. I'm quite nostalgic as well. So I really do like, I feel like every time I write something, that's like a little time capsule for down the road that, and I have, I've done that at times. I've, I've reviewed different things that I've written and it's really illuminating to really look at. I'll, I'll give an example. So I came across, sometimes I've got this linear, like this is the journal from point A to point B and from B to C. This is not one of the, like right now, I think I've got six or seven different versions of, you know, and it's, it's what it is. And maybe I'll piece it together at some point. Maybe I won't. That's not really the point. If they all burn in a fire, like again, the value of processing that is, is still there. Right. But I look back at something that was from a few years ago. And what I noticed was that what I was feeling was very similar to something that I was experiencing in the present moment. Oh, interesting. But it was about something completely different. And so I look at, all right, well, what does that tell me? Like if, if what I'm feeling and what the experience of being in this place right now is almost identical to something, a place that I was in, you know, whatever, a couple of few years previous about something completely different. Well, what that tells me is that this is a me thing. that fast forward two or three years from now, regardless of how the thing that I happen to be, you know, worried about or anxious about in the moment, or regardless of how that does or doesn't resolve, if I don't go one or two or 18 layers deeper to get down to the thing that's causing me to experience things in a way that I'd prefer not to, then I'm going to, (laughs) that cycle is going to repeat itself. I'm going to find myself back in that place, right? So, that uh, I think it's a Zen Buddhist saying, wherever you go, there you are, right? Like, yep, here I am again. (laughs) And yep, we've met the enemy and it is us. So (laughs) I don't know if I answered your question, but those are some some thoughts. Yeah, I love it. I was going to throw something in. Yeah, go ahead. If I can. Nathan, I was curious on this topic of case for curiosity and the power of it. It occurred to me that to really exercise, take it a step further and call it genuine curiosity, I'm guessing that it requires the letting go of presuppositions and personal truths, not universal truths like gravity, (laughs) but personal truths, presuppositions, prior experience, prior programming that we all have at some level. So how have you experienced in your journey, how have you experienced exercising the muscle of curiosity, knowing that in our own observation, we all have presuppositions, personal truths, and, and prior prior programming that comes with that. And it's probably, I'm guessing that it takes a high level of intentionality to have genuine curiosity given the baggage that we all have. That's a great question. And I think it comes down to, you use this word twice, 
programming. I mean, that's a, that's a really powerful thing to understand. And it's something that I really didn't think much about until, mm, I don't know, a few years back, whenever my version of my phase one of my midlife, midlife crisis yeah. started, you know, <laughs> but just, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, I'm wise enough with a lowercase w, I'm wise enough now to acknowledge that there's probably, probably more coming, right? But that's when I really started to think about like, okay, what, and this comes from external inputs. I mean, that's part of it too, is like, I think listening, reading, like seeking out information, whether it be in the form of a podcast, books, other, you know, people that I get a chance to interact with, like, you know, one of the more powerful inputs that I've had over, over this, you know, last whatever, three, four, five years has been a thinker, speaker, writer named Anthony DeMello. And the book that I recommend to almost everybody is called Awareness. It's absolutely fantastic. And he's a Franciscan priest who is very spiritually rooted in his, in his philosophies and concepts and helps. I don't know. It, it resonated with me. You know, I mean, I, I think I've, I'm on my whatever seventh or eighth reading or, or listening to it at this point. But one of the things he talks about is, is programming and is really considering where did this come from? You know, the fact that very few of our, you know, thoughts and ideas, arguably zero <laughs> came yeah. from just us. Yeah. Right? Just like in us. Yeah. Totally. Right? We, we like and to so, think they do, but they don't. <laughs> of course. Yeah. And so on that idea of programming, I think just, I think just to answer your question, it has to begin from a place of I might be wrong or what I'm thinking or how I've been programmed might not be. And even taking out that sort of like overly binary right or wrong, like we can make it a lot more appropriate and say just that may not serve me anymore. You know, and that's something that as I attempt to evolve into the person that I was made to be, that's something that I think about a lot is like, is this serving me now? So going back to something that you said, Rob, about you know, just my time in sales, there are a lot of things, and I can talk about them if you want, but there are a number of motivations and things that drove me during that time that worked really well at that time. But I have since come to understand that that's not an authentic place to operate from. And so it required a lot more energy for me to tap into that fuel source than it does now in my attempt to operate from a more authentic place, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's so good. So if we can go there for a second, and then this will tie in with some of the other places we wanted to go as well. Talk about the role of curiosity when, again, I know you pretty well and I know your story pretty well. The role of curiosity in helping you make that transition from getting by in business to really getting ahead in business. Yeah, it really does come back to that what if question. I looked around and I acknowledged that for the sake of context as we sit here and talk right now. So Rob and I coming from a, the same business and, and having both operated within it for a, whatever, 15, 20 plus year span. You know, I think that as I look at the times when I was just getting by, right, when I was just sort of doing okay and paying the bills and, and whatever, but really not taking full advantage of the opportunity that I, that I had in front of me, it does really come back to that first question of like, what if, what if the people who are, you know, whatever, on stage getting the awards, the, the top performers, what if I'm not that different from them, you know, and, and that's something that... I think it's easy to, and it's human nature, I think, to to push things away that seem unattainable, to look at people who are doing extraordinary things and just assume that they popped out of the womb by some exceptional performer, that they have some some sort of whatever, something else baked into their DNA that the rest of us didn't get. 
And that's just not true. You know, it's, it's just, I mean, of course there are like exceptional gifts that can be leveraged to do extraordinary things. But I think the moment that we say, Oh, that must be nice idea. Oh, it must be nice for so and so to have, you know, A, B, C or D. And if we can find a way through asking questions to transition that into that's for me, like, why not? Why wouldn't I also be able to, if I, if I did the things that they're doing, because at the end of the day, you know, from a, from a business or sales, certainly standpoint, it really does come down to, am I getting the volume of activity that those top performers are? And as my skills increase, of course, those two things combined will get a much better result. But just, just asking that question of like, what if I'm not that different, you know, from the people who are further down the path than me? And then again, back to that pattern recognition, what are those people doing that I can attempt to try and do as well. But it really does start from a place, I think, of of proactively seeking growth. I think that, and this again, this is an oversimplification, but I think that growth comes comes a couple different ways. It comes the hard way when we really don't have any other choice. And everyone, you know, for the most part has had you know, times in their life where it was like, okay, <laughs> this is a literal or figurative, you know, do or die moment. You know my background, Rob, but I'm now uh, 21 years sober. But for me, when I had that rock bottom moment of having had, you know, multiple overdoses and the staring down the barrel of, you know, potentially losing my life or, or my freedom because of the choices that I was making, like that's a, that's a reactive, like, okay, I got to do something different now. It's like, it's not optional. I was talking to a good friend of mine earlier who actually does my, uh, he does the finishing of my pieces. So he does the frames for me. He had what's called a widowmaker heart attack a few months back. Amazing, amazing guy, lifelong smoker, overweight, doesn't taking great care of himself. You know, I saw him a couple, yeah, a couple weeks ago and stopped smoking, eating better, like clearly looks healthier and, and every, I'm like, Dean, you're doing it, you know? And he's like, well, wish it hadn't taken that <laughs> to get me to do that, but we're here now, you know? And so that's kind of an obvious one, right? Like, you know, I don't, whatever, take a lot of credit or, or frankly, as much as I love Dean, give him a lot of credit for like, great, you did the thing you need to do to save your life. Like that's a natural response. Not everybody does it, but still like it was an obvious choice. So when I talk about proactive growth, I think that has to come from a place of not being satisfied. And this is a whole nother, <laughs> this is a whole nother tangent that we can go off of, but that's, that's how to operate from a place of gratitude, but not, what's the word, complacency. How to live in that space. That's really tied back, not to keep on going back to curiosity, but it is kind of tied to curiosity in the sense of how could my life look different or what could my life look like if, fill in the blank. And if we're not asking that question, we don't have that question top of mind probably going to be, it's a little bit of a prison sentence to live the rest of your life as it is now, whatever that is, whether it's relational or financial or athletic or recreational or whatever. And so I I think it's really tied back to being, when you think about proactive, being proactive with that, it's got to be rooted in believing that something else could exist. Because you said earlier, which I thought was awesome, two different things. I might be wrong, but not to get too binary with that. And then this might not serve me anymore. And so rooted in that, it feels like there's some questions and some, there's some self-reflection there that says, what am I currently doing that I should be doing more of? What am I currently doing that I should just maintain? And what am I currently doing that I need to let go of? Because it's just, it's not serving me anymore. And it, it didn't, it got me to where I am, maybe like your buddy's story. And that was useful in a sense, because without that, he might not have ever arrived there at all, but it doesn't serve him anymore. And, and now moving forward to be proactive 
I think like there's one step prior to being proactive and it's being curious. And it, it's harder like to sustain whatever the habits or routines or whatever the activities needed to get from here to there. It's harder to do that when your life doesn't depend on it or whatever, when it's not an extreme, like, you know, when you're not backed into a corner to sustain the effort required is more challenging in those situations. So that's why I think there has to be a, a transition from that curiosity of like, huh, to, okay, that is for me. I do want that. Reverse engineering it back to, okay, what do the steps look like? And then committing to like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to do these things for a predetermined amount of time and just see what happens. Get after it. You know? Yeah. You bet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of harder, one of the uh, things that I think all three of us know to be true is that oftentimes the biggest rewards in life for us come on the other side of some of the hardest things that we have to go through. You've experienced some pretty heavy tragedy in your life. You've got some pretty deep and gnarly scars, and that's really the theme for today. And so let's go there. You know, tell us a little bit about more about your background. Tell us about those scars and then creating curiosity and reflection because those are some those were hard enough to go through, but probably even harder to sit down and reflect on. Because anytime you're reflecting on those, you're reliving parts of that experience and you're going to a place that naturally your mind and your emotions don't necessarily want to go. And yet you've gone there and then you've taken that and you've turned that into some unbelievable things, like particularly your art is such a good physical manifestation of that. Mm. But I've also seen you become a better husband and a better dad and a happier, more peaceful version of yourself as time has gone on and you've dug into some of those things. So give us a little background and then talk to us about that process of not just experiencing those things, but reflecting on and unpacking those things and turning them into something good. Do you want to start with addiction? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So I uh, told my story a number of times. I'm active in, in recovery and in the 12 steps. And so I've you know shortened it down to the, the, the highlights or the quick version. But the simplest version of my story is I, I left for college to play football. And after a year or so on the meal plan and the weightlifting routine, I was up to about 250 pounds, 255. At my most, I'm six foot five. And two and a half years later, after a lot less time on the meth plan, when I checked into treatment for the second time, I was 176 pounds. Yeah. So that was something that, you know, I always joke um, if weight loss is your only goal, meth is a fantastic way to do it. You might lose your. Your, your life, your freedom, your teeth, but you can lose a lot of weight in a short amount of time. That was my end of the road. That was my end of the road drug. I mean, you know, I mentioned this before too, like I think with every strength comes a weakness. There's a, a yang to every, every yang. And so curiosity really got me into like, Ooh, I like the way that that drug made me feel. How about the next one? And, um, I never met a drug I didn't, I didn't like. <laughs> I pretty much, you know, signed me up, you know, for all of them. So yeah, addiction took me to some really, really dark, really dark places. You know, I think I went from not really academically minded, but school came fairly easy to me. You know, sports were important to me, you know, those types of things. I really set aside everything, you know, friends, family relationships, all priorities, like for anybody that hasn't, who isn't, you know, in addiction or in recovery, you know, from one or close to somebody who is, it really, it sort of recalibrates, it reprograms your brain very quickly to only be able to find a version of happiness or further down the line, just being okay and able to like bear with life and with yourself, you know, without that thing, you know, in in my case, it was, 
it was drugs, but it could be anything that we're, we're using to fill that God-sized hole. And yeah, so that was a pretty, pretty hard thing for me to acknowledge when it finally was time for me to take a look. And I mean, like I said, it, it came on the heels of a, of a couple of, of overdoses. You know, I, I had one experience in particular that I, I wasn't sure if I was going to be, you know, normal <laughs> again, if I was going to come back from, you know, what I, what I had done. And so to be at that rock bottom place, to be at a place where, you know, I had to really acknowledge like, this is completely taken over my life. My life is nothing but figuring out how I can get high and stay high. And I was at the end of my rope in terms of I was living in the, what amounted to a crack house and doing whatever I could to find ways to (laughs) um, find my fix. And so that would be one of those, you know, like I mentioned before, one of those reactive moments where it really was, you know, life or death. Like, okay, do you really want to live this way? You know? And I think that, I don't know where that, I don't know where it came from. I don't know if it was just parenting or some of the good programming that I got, you know, growing up. But one of the questions that kept just beating me over the head was, is this what you were put here for? You know, is, is this the life, you know, I had to take a good hard look and pretty short conversation with myself of, you know, no, this is not, this is not what I was meant to be doing. And this is not getting me any closer to whatever my life is intended to be. And so, yeah. And back to that idea of programming, you know, when I went into treatment and I found a solution, you know, I think that it started in treatment, but that's really only the very beginning of the beginning of the beginning. You know, real recovery happens over time. And for me, the majority of that's taken place in, uh, yeah, in, in AA and in 12 steps. And that's programming. You know what I mean? That's, it's reprogramming, right? It's, it's changing the thinking, the thought process around like, what does life look like? And what does it, what does it take for me to show up and do the things that I need to do in order to have a shot at real peace of mind and contentment and happiness? Do you mind sharing a little bit about your sister? No. Yeah. I mean, that, that's another big one for me. I think, um, so my, my sister, I always struggle with where to start. <laughs> with that story. But so my, um, I've got a younger sister and she was two years younger than me. And so we were close growing up. We had, uh, at this point, she had lived in, in Florida for a period of time and moved back to Minnesota. And so uh, at this point, my wife and I had our first daughter and we're pregnant with our second. In fact, my sister, Amy was, <laughs> she was, was with Nikki when Ella was born. I was not, I was on a I was on a work trip because she was very, she was very early. And Ella, our youngest, doesn't fail to bring that up at least monthly, if not more than that, you know. So, well, dad, but you weren't actually there, you know, when I was, <laughs> when I was born. So, yeah. That's hilarious. Um, thanks, honey. I, I don't have many regrets, but going on that trip is one of a very short list of regrets. But so my sister was there. Um, she was living with us at the, at the time. And so she was kind of our living nanny. She was super close with our oldest daughter, especially who was three and a half at the time. But it was, a day in um, in April, we were set to go on a on a trip on a vacation. My wife and I, and Amy was to be back at a certain time to you know watch the girls. So we catch our flight. Wasn't there. We're calling. We're texting. We're like, hey, what's going on? We got to leave. The the time for us to make our flight came and went. So we're just I especially was just livid. Right? Like, how could she be so irresponsible? How could she, you know, fail to show up the way that we need her to? And after a while, that anger turned into fear and confusion around. Like, is she okay? And so a lot of phone calls, a lot of you know trying to figure out, 
you know, where she was or, or what was going on. And that search led me to call the medical examiner in Hennepin County in Minneapolis, which is where we live. And, you know, when, when you're trying to find somebody and it leads you to calling the medical examiner, that's, that's the worst case scenario. And I'm speaking to this lady and she said, well, I can't, I can't give you any information, but I can answer questions. And I said, well, and she said, did she have, did, past tense, she have a dolphin tattoo above her navel? And, and I said, yeah, she did. And that was the first time that I referred to her in the past tense. And that was the moment that I knew that, that she was, was, was dead. And as we sort of pieced the story together, what ultimately had happened was a guy that she was involved with just snapped had had a rough life himself, had been a lifelong steroid user, had a traumatic brain injury a few months previous. Who knows? But just snapped, shot and killed her. Actually drove 15 minutes, shot and killed somebody else, drove 20 minutes, shot and killed another person, and then ultimately took his own life in a low-speed chase with the police. That was a really... Is this just a really, I mean, it's still even today and it's, and it's been, that was in 2010. It's been, you know, 13 years. It's still when I tell that story, it's just like, it just seemed like something you see on the news. It was on the news. My brother and I were, I don't know why we agreed to sit down and be interviewed, but it just doesn't seem real, you know? But I think that what that, so we get to choose. I guess that's if I could sort of try and tie this together a little bit. I think that one of the things that I've learned is that we get to assign meaning to things because the thing happened, right? And so whoever's listened to this, like you've been through some shit, everyone's got their scars, everyone's got their stuff that they don't lead with when they meet somebody at a networking event. We all got hard things that we've been through. And one of the things that I've learned, and that's been true for me, is that we get to choose you know, what things mean. We get to assign meaning to things. And if we don't do it proactively, we will reactively do that. And generally speaking, our reactive assignment of what something means is probably going to be fear-based. It's probably going to lead us to a place of operating from fear, you know, and other derivatives of, of that, right? And I think that, again, this takes work. I didn't just arrive at this the next day, but in grieving her loss and understanding things, you know, I think that what that has meant for me is that it's just a, a very salient example of tomorrow's not promised to any of us and to make the most of the time that we have. And that's one of those things where like academically or intellectually rather, like we could say that and everyone would be like, yeah, of course, right? Like pretty much everyone would agree with that statement. Yeah. But there's a disconnect between agreeing with that as an idea and having like a personal experience around, no, that's real. You know, my 28 year old healthy, beautiful, intelligent sister with us one day, you know, not the next. And so what that did for me in terms of like whatever tangible things that I've sort of taken from that or, or forward is just that like, I know, I know tomorrow's not promised to any of us. And I, and I think about that a lot. I think about that with pretty much everything that I do. I think that, you know, I take that into my art a lot. I think a lot about, and this is, I mean, it can be kind of a morbid thought, but like, you know, it's kind of that stoic idea, memento mori, remember your death, you know, consider the fact that we're, we're all here for a limited amount of time. But I think about that a lot when I'm making art and if I'm considering like, oh, should I try something new or should I do the thing that I already know works? 
to make a slightly different version of something that I've made before. And when given that choice, when I'm aware of it, when my programming allows me to, to catch myself and, and sort of, you know, be the sentinel at the gates and catch that thought, I think, well, what if this was the last piece that I, that I made? Like, what if this is the last thing, you know, so why not? Like, what the hell am I waiting for? Like, why not do the thing that comes to mind that I think is going to get me closest to really yeah, communicating, in this case, visually the way that I want to. But it applies to everything. You know, it applies to taking the trip, making the phone call, you know, spending the time with people, just things that are always easy or at least at face value, easier to put off and say, oh, we'll get to it, we'll have more time. Well, we might actually not have more time, you know. So I think that that to me is a, a, at face value, kind of a morbid idea, but it's really a very empowering one. And it's a real sharp scalpel <laughs> to to make decisions around as well. Will this thing matter in two years and in five years? If yes, I should probably do it. And if no, then what the hell am I worried about? I mean, I want to pause here and just say, I love you. And I appreciate you sharing you this back. with, um, you know, like I've, I've known these parts of you, but you know, this is something that Dave's learning about. This is something that you're sharing with a national audience. And I appreciate you going there. One of the things I've always appreciated about you is, I want to get into this here in just a second. I want to, thanks, bud. I want to talk about the process of processing what happened and processing grief and what your advice would be to somebody that's working through that and genuinely how to work through that and then how to take that and turn it into something good. And I also want to talk about your art as well. But one of the things I wanted to say first is what's always impressed me about you is I was always jealous of you in business in a good way, right? But I'm like, man, this dude has an unbelievable ability to relate to a really wide variety of people and to reach people that I don't always know that I was able to reach because you're able to reach people through your vulnerability and by being able to talk about some really hard stuff that had happened in your life and creating that space for other people to open up and start talking about that with you and to start dealing with that themselves. And that space for them then turned into some incredible growth and some incredible positive change. And I I think of people like Tyler, you know, who we both know and just how much better of a place he's in by being coached and mentored and getting to spend time with you. So I love that about you. And yeah, tell us a little bit about what your advice would be after years and years and years of processing trauma, of processing grief, of processing loss, how to work through that effectively and how to pull lessons and nuggets and truths out of that that are helpful moving forward rather than just getting stuck in the depression of it. Yeah. So when it comes to grief, I think, you know, it's one of the, it's one of the least linear processes that I've ever had any, you know, connection to the most, like by far. I don't, I don't need to qualify it. Like in what I mean by that is there's just no, direct path from, okay, phase, you know, from one phase to the next. And, and by this point, you ought to be feeling, and it's, I mean, it's, it's a deep wound that doesn't heal like any other. You know, if you break a leg, the doctor's going to tell you whatever. If you have X, Y, or Z, you know, surgery or procedure, they're going to be able to tell you ah, after a week, you're going to be feeling this after four weeks, after whatever it might be. I partially, you know, ruptured my Achilles recently, went and saw my physio yesterday. He said, yeah, yep, you know, you ought to be about by 80% after about two weeks and about 100% within, you know, six, six to eight weeks. Okay, cool. Now I know that's not how grief works. It's, it's such a, a difficult thing to really sort of wrap your, really your mind around. I mean, the whole idea, kind of something we were talking about before, where, I mean, of course we know that people die. (laughs) You know, of course we know that either we're going to leave them or they're probably going to leave us. 
at some point. But when you're actually faced with that massive hole in your world, that is that person not being there anymore, doesn't make any sense, you know? So I guess if I were to offer anything, it would be to embrace wherever you're at, at that time. That was so good. Without any expectations around where you should be, you know? And that applies broadly to a number of other things as well, right? Like, you know, the shoulds can, can really be toxic, but I think that's a big part of it. And I've been through it now a couple of times, you know, with the sibling and, and with the parent as well. And just accept where you're at and don't judge yourself for, you know, feeling what you're feeling, giving yourself space to feel things, you know, is absolutely imperative. And, and it's weird, man. I, mean, I remember, especially when we lost Amy and, and the way that we lost her, I mean, there's no like good way for somebody to pass away apart from, you know, the day after your 110th birthday, you know, in your, in your sleep, <laughs> like there, what's a good way to, you know, to lose somebody, but with how sudden it was for her, this is something that we realized just in, in terms of grieving as a family and realizing that there might be moments where, you know, one person is actually able to laugh and smile and reflect fondly upon a memory and somebody else is in the depths of depression and crying and, and <laughs> like everyone's going to be on a, on a, we're not all going to be on the same wavelength at the same time. You know, it was one of the things that we, we kind of had to learn, but I think just to tie this back into something that we've been talking about or nibbling at the edges of the, the entire time is just being aware of what I'm really feeling, trying to be in the game of, you know, living life intentionally and acknowledging what is. I've spent a big, and this is, this for me has happened fairly recently within the last, you know, that what, three, four years of just acknowledging like, oh, I am, oh, let me actually rephrase that. Nathan is experiencing anxiety right now. Isn't that interesting? Where's that coming from? So acknowledging it and then sort of taking that third party perspective of this is a person who happens to be me, <laughs> but who's experiencing this thing as opposed to I am depressed. Well, you might be, but that self-talk, that programming is not not good. No, Nathan is experiencing depression. You know, those are two very, we're saying the same thing. We're being honest about it. We're not, you know, whistling through the graveyard and pretending that nothing's wrong. But there's a much different perspective that comes from just acknowledging like this person who happens to be me is experiencing something in this moment as opposed to I am this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's um if, just a quick plug. I think Anthony DeMello gets into some of that. That's also a very Eckhart Tolle yes. concept of, mm-hmm. of yeah, um, absolutely. It's a miraculous thing to stop and acknowledge that we can think about the thoughts we're having. We can notice our thoughts, right? There's some part of us that's distinct and separate from what we're thinking, what we're feeling in any given moment. Um, and I think that's what you're talking about by taking that third party view, right? Yeah. And just acknowledging like our minds are not our friends. Our minds are not on our team at all. <laughs> like our, our minds have like a very short list of our brain, our mind, our programming from a survival standpoint has just a handful of things that it's thinking about. And our peace of mind and serenity <laughs> is not on that list, right? And so everything that the mind encounters, it runs the filter of, does this impact my survival or my ability to pass my, pass my genes on to the next generation? Like that's pretty much it. And so I think when you operate from a place of, Oh, there I go thinking again, there comes another thought and acknowledging that there's a really good chance. I won't speak for anybody else, but for me, 
high likelihood that it's probably not true. <laughs> it's probably just some invented thing that my brain is just making up to keep itself busy. Yeah, so totally, I mean, great example, right? He talks about how whatever, 90% of our thoughts are repetitive and useless, yeah. right? Like, yeah. yeah for sure. So again, that's back to that reactive versus proactive. If all we're doing is reacting to the nasty whims of wherever our mind might be taking us, like good freaking luck, you know, like that's a rough road. And it's one that most of us, I would say, probably live in a good chunk of the time. That said, if we are proactive about directing a version of a future that we're excited to live into and reminding ourselves of the truth that's really important. So to kind of bring this full circle on the whole journaling thing, that's one of the, to me, the best case I could make if there's a tangible takeaway from today's conversation, like start journaling, like make that a part of your practice. And if you can do it in the morning, all the better. But boy, something incredible happens when you get these little thought goblins, these little mind vampires out into the light of day, they just shrink. They just, you, they, you see how small and how absurd they really are. See if I'm really willing to put myself on the line here because I'm taking notes and in, in one of these is <laughs> this might take some scrolling. But anyway, let's not go there. But but it's you you write it, you're like, holy shit, where did that come from? Yeah. You know? Because yep. that's a skill as well, just getting used to like just write just writing, you know, not like not like the Civil War, dear Mabel, <laughs> today, like, this is not going to be a historical document, probably, like, just write what's coming out. And when you see that, you're like, oh, wow, this is the shit that's going on in my brain right now. And by extension, probably the stuff that's rumbling around in there for a good amount of the time is as well. It goes back to something that's overly simplistic, but really powerful is a problem name is a problem solved. And sometimes the hardest part of working through some of, you know, whatever it is, big or small, is sometimes it's really hard to identify what it is we're feeling and, and what's underlying that, that thing that's not serving us well at that moment. That's right. And I'll make a quick plug here. If there's a second takeaway besides journaling and how many times that's come up today and, and journaling on powerful questions, but also you've been a big advocate for years now on meditation and you introduced me to meditation. And it's interesting how that opens up the space to observe your thoughts and emotions. 100%. Yeah. And just being willing to sit with them. Yeah. As we take this home, can you, let's go to a really cool, really good place. Talk about how trauma, tragedy, shame, some of these different negative emotions, what we would assign as as bad things potentially, how you've taken those and you've actually turned them into something really amazing in your art. And what I love most about your art is you take things that have been discarded and deemed as trash and you turn them into something absolutely amazing that people are willing to pay thousands or tens of thousands of dollars for. And you leave a little bit of yourself in each piece of art that you create. So talk a little bit about how you've incorporated that into your art and what that means to you. Yeah, I think it's something that, as with anything else that I've even come close to figuring out, (laughs) it's come from just a lot of repetition and, and doing. But for me, so it's not something that I set out to do it originally. It wasn't like, hey, I, I want to say this and this is how this connects to my experience and how can I then do that? Like, no, I just started doing it. And then as I would sit back and think about like, what am I trying to say here? What is this saying to me? You know, I had a couple of light bulb moments of like, oh shit, this has been my experience. And it's, if I had something to say, you know, to anybody who might have a reason to listen, that would be it, right? Is like, you know, the, the hardest things that we've been through can provide our greatest strengths. I think that this is paradoxical, but the more shit you've been through, the higher your upside, really. You know, I mean, I don't know a whole lot of people that have had a real like 
Pollyanna, super easy existence who are all that interesting, (laughs) (laughs) you know? And if you really look at the upper, not that this is uh, something to strive to, but if you really look at the elites in almost any space that have accomplished extraordinary things, you're not going to find a whole lot of healthy, well-adjusted people that have had easy lives, right? Like very few, you know what I mean? And so, you know, one of two things is happening there. Either they found a way to leverage that pain and, and turn into power or they're running very effectively from some of those things, maybe a combination of both. But so for me, how I interpret that visually is just taking things that, yeah, would otherwise be considered trash. <laughs> You'll laugh at this. So Nikki, my wife, was helping me clean out the studio yesterday and we were going through some stuff and I walked past the garbage. I'm like, what? And I pulled out some <laughs> some some pieces of like shredded plastic that I, I like to pick up when I'm on walks because the lawnmower will shred things in a certain way when it runs over like a plastic bag that I could never replicate with even my scalpel in the studio, right? It's just because it happened organically. Anyway, so literally she was like, really, this is, I mean, yeah, babe, it sure is. That's going to be, that's going to be treasure or, or my version of it. So trying to find a way to communicate visually that the things that would otherwise be discarded or considered to be worthless or to be even hidden and set aside, right? And, and that's really from an emotional standpoint, you know, for me, that's what I did a large part of my life up until recently and probably still do, you know, to a hopefully lesser extent, but just, oh, is this a productive emotion? And if not, set it aside, right? I'm only, I'm I'm here to achieve. So I'm into those productive emotions that get me in that good place. But, you know, but being willing to sit with that stuff that's not comfortable, it's not fun to look at, but has tremendous opportunity for growth when it's properly discussed. You asked me earlier too, and this might be a good place to kind of wrap up, I suppose, but you asked me before about just connecting with people and, and willingness to be vulnerable. That is a product of programming for sure. I honestly, I don't even remember. I'd have to really sit down and think about it and probably ask my mom and other people like, Hey, what was I like as a, you know, as a kid? But whether it all came from this or most of, certainly most of, of my willingness to do that and just complete comfort in just dumping all of it out there comes from recovery, you know, and that understanding that you have to just lay it all out there if you're going to get better. So for me, this is going to bring things full circle, whether it be trying to live into the life that I was meant to live or trying to communicate what I want to say with my work. I just believe all day, every day that authenticity always wins, just always does. I'm drawn to people who are real and authentic And I try to be that type of person. I'm drawn to art that is real and that is gritty and that is authentic. And I try to make the kind of work that I want to have around me. You know what I mean? Like this is video, obviously. So, or this is audio. So what I'm pointing at as as we talk on video will not translate, but the work in the studio right now, if those pieces never sell, like that's okay. I like having them around. (laughs) You know, they said something, you know, and it makes me, it makes me happy to have them around, you know? And so I just, I try to make the kind of work that I would want to have around me. I try to be the kind of person that I'm most drawn to. And I am immediately distrustful of anybody who claims or even sort of suggests that they got it all figured out because nobody does. You know what I mean? I've had a chance to be around some top and some, you know, elite people in their fields over time. I've not met a single one of them that claims to have it all figured out. And even if they do, like, who, like, that's not interesting. You know what I mean? Like the people that I feel have the most to offer are the ones who are like, this is true for me right now, I think. (laughs) 
But operating from that place of, of openness and curiosity of like, but it might not be forever. There are, of course, some fundamental truths that are important to operate from. But beyond that, like, to me, it, it's all, <laughs> it's all open for consideration when I'm uh, approaching it properly from that place of awareness. Yeah. Dude, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for everything you My shared. Pleasure. There's so many good takeaways and. Man, I'm so happy you're in the space that you're in now, right? Because I knew you for a long time and in another space and you built a really impressive organization and that that organization was on the scale of dozens of salespeople that you had a chance to impact and have relationship with in a, in a deep, meaningful way. Now you're able to share your art on different platforms and you're reaching tens of thousands of people and growing. I mean, more people get to hear your story, more people get to be a part of what you're learning what you're observing, and then how you're incorporating that into your art, which which I absolutely love. So we talk a lot about writing a story worth telling, and you're definitely doing that. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. As always, we like to have a couple takeaways, a couple action items. Two in particular that I think stood out from this are start the habit of journaling and pay attention to what questions you're asking. If somebody wanted to reach out to you and follow up, what would be the best way to do that? Yeah, so a couple ways. You can contact me through my website, just my full name, Nathan Terborg, N-A-T-H-A-N-T-E-R-B-O-R-G.com, or I'm probably most active on Instagram, and my handle is the same thing, just my full name, Nathan Terborg. So I reply to all DMs and messages through the website, either one. Nice, awesome. And that's where I share my work as well, in case people are curious what garbage art looks like. Yeah. And did you just say Twitter or Instagram? Instagram. Instagram. What about, are you're on Twitter as well? Right? No. No? Okay. Not at all. Never mind. <laughs> all right. That's not a neighborhood I want to spend time in. Go check them out. So journaling and asking powerful questions and taking the time to reflect. And then the second one was making that space for meditating and just observing what's going on internally within yourself. Anything else that you would add as action items for somebody who's listening? Yeah, I think we talked about questions a lot. And so I think that, I mean, we didn't really get into this, but I think I'm, I'm just such a huge fan of mentorship. And so I think that sometimes I've introduced that idea to people of, of asking, you know, better questions. And you kind of get, I have been met with a blank stare of like, well, what are you talking about? Like, what do you mean? And so I think that's really where if I had one, one other thing to throw in there, it would be really edit your questions and, and consider what you could or should be asking yourself, but also be willing to ask the people who know you, the people who are around you, or the people who have, maybe don't know you at all, but are further down a path that you are interested in pursuing. And just ask the question of what questions could I be asking? What things should I be thinking about that maybe I'm not, right? It all comes back to curiosity, right? But ask better questions and, and plug into the people around you to do that. Yeah, cool. Synthesizing something you said earlier. Number one, ask. Number two, be willing to experiment. Number three, reflect on whatever it is you're doing and whatever you're experimenting with. And then four, take what you're learning in those reflections and implement it. And that's a never-ending cycle of, as you put it earlier, evolving into who you were created to be, right? which is a never-ending process. So, That's it. Love you, man. Thanks again. Love you back. Thanks, brother. See ya. Cheers. Cheers.